in preaching class, they tell you that when you start your message, it's helpful to have an engaging and attention-grabbing introduction. Because, you know, if it starts out really lame and boring, then likely people will tune out sooner rather than later. In this passage that we're about to see, I don't think we need an attention-grabbing introduction. I think what we need to do is see this sermon in two parts. First, the riveting, attention-grabbing story itself, and then the relevant message and lessons it has for us. So first, what I want to do is just expose you to what I think is one of the better stories in all of the Bible. And if this doesn't grab your attention, then I think we're kind of out of luck for you. And then I would like to end by applying what we've learned from this story. So my plan is to read a few things, give a comments and context, so that way you understand why this should be such a riveting attention grabbing story. The story is going to be found in Luke chapter 7, found on page 864 in the Black Bibles around you. Luke chapter 7, we're starting verse 36 and read to the end of the chapter. The context of this story we need to remember even from last week for those of you that were with us. Last week we saw in Luke chapter 7, verse 34 and 35, that Jesus was being accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, not just because he ate and drank, but because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners who also ate and drank quite often. So in the context of that accusation, Jesus says that you have rejected the wisdom of God. That's the Summary of verse 36, or verse 35, that, rather. And we know that from verse 30, if you look up, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God. And so then Jesus says, what should we say of these people? They've rejected God's wisdom as they've made these accusations about Jesus being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So there's, there's our context for this story that Luke is going to put right after that comment about this accusation of friend, a lover of tax collectors and sinners, and Pharisees who reject the purposes of God, notice this next story. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. First, make sure you notice that the Pharisee is the one inviting Jesus into his house. He should be the host. And a host has the obligation to receive and welcome the people, just like if you were to have someone over to your house. You should greet them, you should take their coat, you should help them figure out if they need to wear their shoes or not, etc., etc. There's normal customs in every culture for welcoming someone in. All we see so far here is that he invites him, Jesus accepts the invitation, and he reclines. Now, recline here means that when he goes to the table, the tables weren't like the tables you and I had. He didn't sit down in a chair. He would have leaned down onto his left shoulder. His feet would have been behind him, and there would have been either a short table or just some pillows and couches. They would have basically been eating on the floor. So that's the picture here. A Pharisee invites Jesus into his house, one of these rejecting the purposes of God Pharisees. Jesus comes in, and all we see is he reclines down at the table. Verse 37, behold. 
a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Behold. See, this is supposed to get your attention. Behold, there is a woman who has arrived in this house. She's not just any woman. She's a a woman of the city. Now, if you don't know Greek idioms or phrases, you could probably guess just by reading the English. Okay, got ideas of what kind of woman of the city, woman of the lady of the night kind of person this might be. And then if it wasn't clear enough, she was a sinner. She was known as being one of these awful sinners, categorized, ostracized. Most conclude, historically, traditionally, this woman was a prostitute. It doesn't mean that she was necessarily. It doesn't say that explicitly. She could have been just known for her adultery. She could have had a husband who was an evil criminal. There's all kinds of possibilities here. It's not clear enough. But tradition tells us she's likely a prostitute. Notice the phrase, she learned. She knew something about Jesus. There was word on the street. She had prior knowledge about who Jesus was and where he was at. And that he was at the table of the Pharisee's house. Now, immediately you and I start thinking as we hear this context in 21st century homes where doors are locked and people are private and there's garages and fences and stay away. Don't think about your home. Don't think about the homes down the street. Houses are open. Parties like this or banquets or dinners would have been open for any guests to kind of walk in and out. Now, not sit at the table, but just be an observer looking on. That would have not been strange in this first century culture. So make sure you're getting the context right. Open homes, doors not shut, people can walk by. Oh, there's something going on. And in fact, there's word on the street that Jesus is in this home. And she hears of this and she goes and she brings something with her an alabaster flask of ointment. Now we can know from other texts of Scripture that these alabaster flasks of ointment could have cost up to 300 denarii, and denarii is a day's wage, so 300 days' wage. That's a year's worth of work. The text doesn't emphasize the expensiveness of this ointment, but we should know, friends, there's, there's something important that's being brought to our attention, that as she comes, she's bringing purposefully an ointment to Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, which would make sense given the context of him leaning on his shoulder, his feet are behind him. She begins weeping. Weeping so much that she began to wet his feet with her tears. I don't know when the last time you had a big cry but this is a big cry. This isn't just a little tear streaming down the cheek. Jesus' feet are getting wet. So wet that she then moves to wipe them with the hair of her head. Friends, this is the riveting part of the story because in this culture, if you're not familiar even with 21st century Middle Eastern culture, hair should be covered up, should not be exposed. Many, many scholars have concluded that this is a sexual move. 
This would have been on par today of somebody taking their top off and using their shirt to wipe his feet. Imagine being at a dinner table and this woman would have been seen topless and wiping messy, dirty, muddy feet that are now all wet from tears. What what kind of scene could this have been at this dinner? Now, that's, that's a very common interpretation of this hair being used. That's actually from two years ago when we were studying Luke's gospel. That's actually the way I taught it. There's another explanation, though, that I came across this week that I think probably makes a little more sense with the rest of the story as we read it. It would have been very common in the first century that a woman who is seen weeping and her hair unkempt would have been seen grieving. So the fact that she has her hair down shouldn't just be seen, okay, she's a woman of the city and her hair's down. Oh, she's making advances on Jesus. Hmm. You know, like that's, that's probably not what's going on. And in fact, what we'll see later is that they're not so alarmed at her, they're alarmed at Jesus. They're not surprised by this move she's making. They're surprised at what Jesus is doing. So it's probably more likely, I think, and and more consistent to read this as a grieving woman who has her hair unkempt and undone. And as she sees Jesus' feet all wet with her tears, she wipes them with the hair of her head and then kisses his feet and then uses that anointment to anoint them Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and my guess is everybody in the room saw this. You know, you ever been in a a room where something happens, loud noise, some ruckus, everybody's attention just turns right to that? The weeping, it was probably not quiet. Everybody's attention's on this woman. So Simon, the Pharisee, He says to himself, notice he doesn't say out loud, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Notice he's not thinking, what is this woman doing in my house? Get out of here, woman. Who do you think you are taking your top off? No, no, that's that's not what's happening here. Jesus, why in the world are you letting this woman touch you like this? That would make you unclean. How can you say that you're a prophet of Israel, a prophet of God, a clean and holy man, and you're letting this unholy woman touch you? Everybody knows who she is. Gotta love Jesus. Jesus answered him. Answered him? He didn't say anything. He knew what he was thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. One Middle Eastern scholar named Kenneth Bailey says this phrase in the first century would have been a blunt phrase that you would have not wanted to respond to. So Simon is not catching on. He answers, okay, tell me, say it, teacher. He he should have known better. Jesus tells him a story. Imagine a certain moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Remember, a denarii is a day's wage, so 500 days of work. So we're, we're talking about almost a year and a half 
of wages. Imagine a year and a half of your salary. You're in debt that much. And then the other person owed 50. So now we're talking 50 days, just two months, a month and a half. So one owed a lot. One owed a good bit, but not as much. Here's the key. Neither of them could pay. And when they could not pay, he canceled. Literally, the word is graced. He forgave. Canceling debts and forgiveness, these words are interchangeable. He canceled. He forgave the debt of both. So then he asks Simon, Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, You have judged rightly. This is, this is one of the moments of the story that I think are, are really important details to look. Then turning to the woman. So he's leaning in toward the table, probably his face towards Simon as he's talking to Simon. He knows what's happening. His feet are getting wet. She's washing them. Now he's done talking to Simon face to face. He's still talking to him, but now he's looking down at the woman. And as he looks at the woman, he says, do you see this woman, Simon? Look at her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. The woman who was a stranger, we don't even know her name, just her reputation. That woman, Jesus applies this parable to and says that she is welcoming him and you, Simon, have disrespected me. Do you see the contrast here between the welcomed, the welcoming of a stranger compared to the neglect and the disrespect of the host? What a contrast. This parable in and of itself is a rather bland story that Simon gets quite easily, as well you and I probably would if we heard it by itself. The parable that Jesus tells gets a little spicy right here because he applies it in this context. Therefore, here's his conclusion. Her sins, which are many. Jesus knows fairly well who she is. Oh, if he were a prophet, he, he would know who she is. He knows. Her sins are many. But they have been. They are forgiven. Past tense here in the Greek language. For she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, I think this is one of the sweetest moments in this whole story. Imagine all that's just happened. Imagine knowing who she is. And imagine knowing who Jesus is. He says, in what I can only imagine, some of the most tender words that she's ever heard, the most grace-filled, loving words she's ever heard, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who, who is this? Who, who's this that he forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, 
Your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that an amazing story? Remarkable. Much, much to love about it. Not just a good story, not just riveting with twists and turns and surprises, but it's so relevant for us today. Three lessons of relevance for this story. Let's look at each of these three characters one at a time and see what we can learn from them. First, let's look at Simon and learn a lesson about being judgmental. Are we a room full of people that have never struggled with judgmentalism? Let's not kid ourselves. When do you think the last time you've judged someone else by the way they looked, by the clothes they wore, by the skin color they had, by their economic status, by their morals, by their political affiliations? This story is pretty relevant for us if you've ever been judgmental. Simon is judging this woman. I love what one commentator said, Daryl Box said, Simon could not see the new woman that she had become. He could only see the woman she used to be. Couldn't see what Jesus knew. It was a different woman, a grieving woman, grieving over her many sins more than likely. Simon couldn't see it. He looked down on her for being a sinner. Does, doesn't he know who she is? A sinner? It might be lost on some of us in this room, but we should be reminded it doesn't help that she was not only a sinner, but that she was a woman. A woman was not given the same respect men were in the first century. A woman was not allowed to give testimony in court. A woman's opinion was not respected. Women were never educated. They were seen as second-class citizens just for being a woman. So she's doubly second class, a sinful woman. The message of Christianity here is quite countercultural, isn't it? When people in the society of the first century look down on this sinful woman, what does Jesus do? He loves, he accepts, he forgives. This is why Galatians chapter 3 says there's now no more Jews or Greeks. There's no more ethnic divides. There's no more slave and freeze. There's no more male or female. All are one in Jesus Christ. Embassy Church, do you see in this parable a confrontation with your own sin of judgmentalism? Judging others who you think are more sinful than you, judging others because they're not a certain class of citizen that you are. We should see the actions of Jesus and notice how countercultural they are. By the way, if some of you are wondering, is the emphasis really here on her being a woman? Luke is careful in his organization of this book. And if you're wondering, 
do I just have a lot of respect for Luke as an author, as a historian? He, he actually says this in chapter 1. He says, I've carefully put together all these stories in a certain manner. So right after this story of this sinful woman, notice what happens in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he, that being Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women. Women who had been healed of evil spirits, women who had been healed from all kinds of infirmities. There was Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others. And they provided for them out of their means. Do you realize that the ministry of Jesus was supported and provided for by women? He, he didn't just hang out with the 12 disciples. He accepted unclean, spirit, demonically filled women. If you're not seeing the ramifications of this in the first century, you're kind of missing what Luke's doing here. This is big. And it should be big for us in the 21st century, even when women might be given a little bit more dignity and value than the first. My hope and prayer is the elders of Embassy Church gather together even today to discuss how we should view women in the church, that we will not at all for a single second look down on women as being second-class citizens of lesser value or dignity. They are to be disciples of Jesus Christ and use their gifts to support the message and ministry of Jesus just like all the men in this room. This does not mean that there might not be different roles within the church, and that's what your elders are striving even later this afternoon to figure out what that looks like at embassy. But this much is clear. Women are loved, accepted, cared for, and a vital part of the ministry of Jesus. So they should be here at embassy. Jesus is a friend of sinners. All kinds of sinners including sinful women. I wonder why Jesus didn't tell her to stop or apologize. I read one commentary that said, look, look you got to understand, as you're reading this story, it would have been expected that maybe he says, look, yes, I'm a friend of sinners, but, but this woman's gone a little too much above and beyond. She's gotten a little too close. She should know better. I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out. We'll, we'll work on this later. I will address this after the dinner. Nope, none of the above. He didn't apologize for her behavior. But here's the thing about this story and judgmentalism. Notice that Jesus is not just a friend of sinners who eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus is a friend of judgmental sinners. If we miss this, we're going to really miss the contrast of Luke chapter 3. 7 verse 35, and, and Jesus calling out these Pharisee men who have rejected the purposes of God and then tells a story about, yeah, I will befriend and eat with sinners, including Pharisee sinners who are judgmental toward women who have had their lives transformed by my wonderful gospel. How about that? 
It's not just that Jesus should have told this woman, culturally speaking, what you're doing is a little too much. He should have told Simon, what you are doing is too little. Do you realize if Jesus, being the respected rabbi, prophet, teacher that he is known to be, walks into an invitation of a man's house and gets no greeting, no water for his feet, no kiss, no hug or embrace, welcome into my home, the coldness that there must have been when he walked in and nobody is greeting him and loving him like they should. He should have walked out. He should have said, sorry, guys, I don't do this. But he stayed because he is a friend of sinners, and he eats with them, even judgmental sinners. I think this story is almost a direct parallel to another story Jesus is going to tell that you all are familiar with called the prodigal son. Because in Luke chapter 15, it says that there are a lot of self-righteous Pharisees And then there were a lot of tax collectors in the crowd. And because Jesus kept being accused of eating with all of these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus told some stories, one of them being the prodigal son. And oftentimes all we think about is that, oh, God the Father is the Father who waits and longs for his sinful son and runs out to him. Yeah, he's that kind of father. But do you notice in the prodigal son story, he goes out and entreats the self-righteous older brother? That's what's happening here, but it's not a parable. This is the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, the prodigal son lived out. Jesus does eat with sinners, doesn't he? So Embassy Church, are we accepting and patient and loving and as kind and slow as Jesus is? I keep wondering, why didn't Jesus just call him out? Jesus should have just said, Simon, you are a disrespectful, judgmental sinner, and you're looking down on me. That's not what he said. That's not what he did. Kind of eased into it. Hey, I got a story to tell. (laughs) Who do you think loved him most? It reminds me a lot of David when he sinned with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet comes and said, you're that man. That's what Jesus is doing here. It seems a lot more gentle than I would have thought. I hope we learn our lesson. If we want to be more and more like Jesus, we need to confess our judgmental, egotistical pride where we look down on people for any reason. In light of the holiness of God, we are nothing. Lesson number two. If the first lesson was a lesson on being judgmental, the second lesson is a lesson on love. This we see displayed not just by Jesus, but by this sinful woman. She did not only do what Simon failed to do, she did incredibly more. She brought everything that she had. She brought all of her power, all of her finances. She came and said, Jesus, you can have it all. If she was in fact a prostitute and had with her, this alabaster jar of ointment, this would have been her most treasured possession, not just because of how expensive it was, but because it was her only means to make money as a prostitute. To lure men in 
to be attractive, to be smelling clean and not filthy. She brings that alabaster jar and to pour it over his feet. Most people understand that the way this jar would have been made, she would have had to break it. She is broken of her sin and wants it no more. She will be humiliated. She doesn't care. She'll be disgraced. She doesn't care. She will be poor. She doesn't care. This woman is showing incredible, unconditional love of Jesus. So if you and I don't learn this lesson, that if you want to come to Jesus, you need to realize that it will involve your reorientation of everything. This woman doesn't come and kind of gets a little tweak about how to do prostitution a little better or morally appropriately. Her whole life gets radically oriented, not just in her prostitution, but in the way she sees her possessions and the way she sees herself, her confidence now to stand in front of all of these self-respecting Pharisee men and say, I don't care about what they think. I will do this act of kindness, this act of repentance, this act of faith and love toward Jesus and anoint his feet with this alabaster jar. Don't come to Jesus and help him achieve your goals. Come to Jesus dead. Dead to your former goals. He gives you better ones. Jesus is not your self-help buddy that's going to help you achieve your goals he is going to give you new goals. You have a current love for certain things in the world. Jesus is going to tell you, forsake those loves. Love me first and foremost. That's what she's doing. And friends, if you want to follow Jesus and get what he's doing in this story and in every other story, then come and forsake everything. Don't just add Jesus on. Don't just add church as a little add-on to help you with your current agenda. Get a new agenda. Get a new love. Get a new heart. That's an important lesson for all of us, but you need to understand where in the world this love comes from. What's the source and the power of this love? How more relevant could this story be than the clear explanation of Jesus at the end of the story to tell you and us where love comes from? Any, any of you think that the world could use more love in it and less violence and hatred? Any of you think that today, right now, it would be great to see an ever-increasing number of people who love all kinds of ethnicities, black or white, Asian or Hispanic? doesn't matter what kind of religious faith you believe, Muslim or Christian, Hindu. Wouldn't it be great to see a world full of people who love, genuinely love? And wouldn't you love to see more love in your life? This is incredibly relevant. And if you're understanding that the reason this story's in here and how love comes for this woman, you'll know the secret key for love in your life and the message we then want to spread to the rest of the world so that they can get this love. So where does it come from? Many people throughout the history of the church have actually translated this and understood it wrong. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for, 
she loved much. And so what's often seen here is in verse 47, oh, she's forgiven because of her works of love, her demonstration of love. Jesus sees how much she has loved him, therefore he will forgive her. That might look like it makes sense in that sentence, but it doesn't make sense with the second half of the sentence. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The love is not the reason why she was forgiven. The love is the result from being forgiven. Do you see the difference between the two? It's the only way to make sense of both sentences put next to each other. If you have been forgiven just a little bit, you will love a little bit. Imagine the the story of, of the parable here that Jesus tells. Imagine that you just bought a home and let's say it's several hundred thousand dollars and you have a mortgage because you don't have several hundred thousand dollars and there's just no way you can pay that in once. One sitting. Imagine the person who's in charge of your mortgage says, house is yours, forgiven. No debts. You and us, we're good. You don't have to pay any more mortgage. Then imagine that you owe maybe $1,000 or so on your credit card, and the person in charge of your credit card calls and says, hey, your credit card, you don't have to pay it. It's all forgiven. You see the difference between the two? If, if this story happened and your house had $700,000 worth of debt on it, was just forgiven, you would go and you would hug that man. Ah, thank you. You'd be jumping up and down. Honey, friends, guess what? We've got all kinds of money now. Wow, this is fantastic. The credit card, oh, great, that's cool. Do you see the difference? That's Jesus' point here. The key for you and me is to not look at your sin and try and count up, okay, so wait, am I more like Simon or am I more like the sinful woman? Hmm, let me see, how bad have I been? Well, I've not been a prostitute, I've never killed anybody, I'm not a terrorist, and I'm, you know, I'm probably more like Simon, you know, I've got judgmentalism and some sin in my heart. Oh, no, 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 if that's you, you are missing the point of the story. All of us are the sinful woman. All of us have many sins. And all of us have been extended all of those sins to be forgiven on the cross of Jesus Christ so that you could be like the man who's had his whole house and much, much more, infinitely more than that silly illustration of a mortgage being forgiven. Your sins, past, present, and future sins, nailed on the cross of Jesus Christ, all forgiven. If you understand that you are a great big sinner and Jesus Christ is an amazing, awesome Savior, love flows out naturally. You don't have to try and produce it or muster it up. Let me try and love them better. No, no, no. Look not at your sins. Stop looking at your sins to see whether you're a big sinner or a little sinner. Look at the cost for which your sins cost. Then you'll know if you were a big sinner or a little sinner. It cost God his son. It cost Jesus his life. If you look at the cost, you'll know that God spent a lot to get your sins forgiven. So yes, you're a big sinner. 
Is that starting to help? This parable should be applied to us. If you want to grow in your love for God, grow in your love for your husband, your wife, your friends, your family, your neighbor, your enemies. Look at the cost for which God saved you of your sins and see, see if that does not just start rising up out of you. Love, all kinds of love for God and for others. I can't even explain how through 30 years of life, God has in very many different times shown me the beauty of his love on the cross and my natural reaction is just to love people. I, I can't explain what's happening other than say, God, through his spirit, through his word, preaching the gospel to me, I just start wanting, I want to help someone, I want to love someone, not because I want to pay God back, just because he has loved me so much. Has that ever happened to you? Is it happening right now? Man, I just want to love someone more because he has loved me so much. This is the lesson of love. Third and finally, a lesson about true religion and the true God of the true religion. A lesson about true religion. Notice the last sentence that we see, the last two sentences. Those who were at the table were with him, began to say among themselves, who is this? Who forgives sins? Now imagine, you're a Jewish man, you're a Jewish woman, you're in the crowd, you're at the table, and you're thinking right now, Jesus has looked down at this woman and declared, your sins are forgiven. If you're a Jewish man, you're a Jewish woman, you have the context of the Jewish faith in mind, and you understand that sins are forgiven in a certain form and fashion, but not like that. That's not how this works. That's why the question comes up, who, who does he think he is? That he's declaring forgiveness of sins. That happens by one person and in one place. The high priest on the day of atonement in the Holy of Holies as he makes purification of sins on an animal sacrifice. How can this man then, not in the temple, not declaring to be a priest, the reputation is that he's a prophet, how is he declaring sins forgiven? Because he is not just a prophet. He is the last and final priest who will forgive all sins by his once and forever sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, there would be one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Here in this picture of him saying to this woman, your sins are forgiven, is a declaration from the priest of all priests. And he has all authority to say it. And he creates in that moment a brand new and true covenant a new religion, if you want to put it that way. Who is this? He's more than a prophet. He's more than a priest. He's the final priest. He's the final prophet. He knows not just who that woman was. He knew Simon's heart. Oh, I love that part of the story, don't you? Oh, if, if he were a prophet, he would know what she is like. She's a sinner. Oh, I know what she's like, Simon, and I know what you're thinking right now, because I am a prophet. I'm the son of God, the final prophet. God in flesh. Who is this that declares your faith has saved you? Go in peace. Where else in Jewish tradition does somebody declare to all of the citizens of the Jewish faith, Shalom. Go in peace. Do you know who that's reserved for? 
not a prophet, not a priest, but the king of Israel. In this story, who is this is answered. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king of Israel and the whole wide world. All forgiveness of sins comes through him. All peace will flow from him. He will restore and renew the whole world, and his kingly rule will reign over every evil person and thing for all time and forevermore. We have the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this story. So is your faith in him. Your faith has saved you. The key to this story for you and me, if we're going to learn this lesson, is faith. Not works, not your demonstration of love. He didn't look down at that woman and said, because you broke that alabaster jar, I will save you and forgive you of your sins. No, it was because she knew the reputation of Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. She heard about him. She learned of him. She brought the alabaster jar, and she wept over her sin with grateful gratitude about the forgiveness that he could offer. He offered it, and when she got it, Jesus declared these words, it's your faith that saved you. So there's only one last thing for you to learn from this story, is all of your faith in Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king. You know, do you remember the prodigal son story that I mentioned has parallels to this one? We know what the prodigal son did when how that worked out. It ended with a feast. What we don't know is what happened to the elder brother. Jesus entreated. He went after him. He showed grace to him because Jesus loves all kinds of sinners, even self-righteous, hypocritical, judgmental sinners. And the story ends. And so here, we don't know what happens to Simon. Did he repent? Did he get convicted? Did he then believe? Was that the epiphany? Yes, that is. Oh, finally. Jesus is the true prophet, priest, and king. We don't know. But this we can know. The offer of forgiveness of sins through faith and faith alone that then produces mighty works of love is offered to you right now. Do you, as a Christian, put all of your faith and hope today in this Jesus? Do you hear, as a non-Christian or somebody that's not sure who Jesus is and trying to figure that out, what's keeping from you finishing the story with your faith in the Son of God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have come this morning, we want to come with grateful hearts who are thankful, not just for a cool story, but for the words and the teaching that is attached to them. What timeless, helpful, life-producing, love-overflowing words that we have just read and considered. Thank you for them. Thank you for Jesus Christ. 
and that we can know through this word who he is and what he's like. Thank you that we're not left in a fog about what sort of religion and faith Christianity is. Thank you that it's personal. Thank you that it's deep. Thank you that it reaches down into every facet of our being and affects all of us. And thank you, first and foremost, for the infinite cost for which you gave to make all of this possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.